Awesome. Well, yeah, it's great to be with you guys here at the Medina East Campus. Welcome out. And of course, like Kevin mentioned too, if you're joining us on live stream, we're super glad that you're able to be with us as well. Thanks for uh, catching us that way. We're glad that you're able to be with us. And I do just want to reiterate something Kevin said too, and that's just how thankful uh, I know we are, how thankful I am for everyone who helped Bible Camp uh, kind of make that possible this past week. It was absolutely outstanding. I know many of us are uh, maybe a little bit uh, tired, a little Bible Camp hungover. Uh, but uh, but we our, our hearts are full because of what God did over this past week. And I do just want to tell you that as the uh, as the campus pastor here at the Medina East Campus, just how um, how personally thankful I am uh, to you, and specifically for what God is doing within the next generation. And so uh, this past week, it was so cool seeing so many kids that we were able to impact in such a powerful way. So many volunteers who helped with that. Uh, what you might not know is uh, over the past couple of weeks, I also was able to be part of something called Momentum Youth Conference. And so for the past couple of weekends, I've kind of been in and out of town. And the reason is because we have a national youth conference this year. Uh, We did it in a little bit of a different way. And so it was multiple locations uh, in multiple states. We saw over 1,600 high school students who are kind of part of our church network who took part in that. Many of our own teens who are part of the Medina East Campus were part of that too, and so so thankful for that. Weeks before that, uh, some of you might know, we did junior camp, which is uh, for our uh, middle school students and for our uh, elementary age students as well. We did uh, summer camp that happened. All that's happening, and I'm just so excited about what God is doing specifically with the next generation. And so if you're someone who, um, who helps serve in any of those ministries, Power Kids, in United, in Student Ministries, and all those kinds of things. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate that. You know, one of our uh, deep passions as a church, and we've talked about this over the past couple of years, is that we want to be people, those of us who follow Jesus, who each one of us looks back a generation and helps invest and pour into the generation that's coming behind us. We said that we think that the best way that the church is at its best when every generation is doing that for the next generation. And so, so thankful to see that happening and excited about what God is doing uh, in some of those ways. Uh, If you are someone who's new to the Medina East Campus, your first time here, I do just want to say a very special welcome to you too. Uh, You came on uh, kind of an interesting week because this is actually the final week in a series that we've been in for the past seven weeks that we have been calling Broken Religion. And basically what we've been doing in this series is we've actually been looking through uh, a passage of the Bible that contains maybe some of Jesus's most famous teaching. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been looking at a specific part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus really talks about some very, very personal issues. And this, this, this teaching, we said, is really among some of Jesus's most profound and some of the most penetrating teaching you see in all of the scripture. And so Jesus is going to talk about issues, for example, of things like anger, Uh, in this passage. We said that Jesus is going to talk about things like sex and sexuality. He talks about things like marriage and divorce and remarriage. Jesus talks about words and how we use our words. He talks about fighting. And then in this last week, we're going to talk about Jesus's teaching specifically on enemies. So we're actually going to focus our time and our energy today. And and so we said, man, these topics, uh, profound, um, deeply personal, deeply penetrating teaching from Jesus. And so it's been kind of an intense series. And so as we finish today, we're going to look at this last part. We're going to look at Jesus's teaching on enemies. And so I want to encourage you, if you've got your Bible, why don't you grab it with me and let's return together to the passage we're looking at in Matthew chapter 5. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, I would love it if you could join me. We're going to go to Matthew 5. 
If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, you can use the ones under the chairs, page 786 in those Bibles. And then, of course, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take a Bible. You can make that a gift from us to you. So Matthew 5 is where we're going to go. Now, as you're finding Matthew 5, and as we are looking to close this series, I think it might be helpful for you to know that Jesus' teaching that we're going to look at on enemies today actually makes the most sense um, it, when, you, when you listen to last week's message. And so some of you might have been here last week. Colin did an awesome job looking at the passage that came right before this. And the passage that comes right before this is all about the issue of vengeance, or it's all about the issue of retaliation. And we said that Jesus is really going to teach us uh, that last week, Jesus is going to teach his followers to withhold or to restrain from repaying evil for evil. He's going to talk about how followers of Jesus are called to withhold retaliation. Well, this week, it's going to be a continuation of that, but Jesus is actually going to ratchet it up a notch. So Jesus is going to say, not only should his followers withhold retaliation, but he's now going to say that we should actually go on to active love for our enemies. So let me show you what Jesus is going to teach us here. This is the passage that we're going to look at, starting off in verse 43. Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, but I tell you, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you might be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? So be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so again, we said, man, if you look at this, you'll see a progression between last week's passage and this week's passage. Last week, Jesus said uh, that, we should, that we, should, uh, we, should re- we should restrain ourselves, we should restrict ourselves, we should withhold retaliation. But this passage, he says, we should actually go beyond that into actually loving, loving our enemies, loving those who are against us. Of course, I think this presents a pretty big challenge, for sure. It's hard enough to withhold the right to, or the the desire to seek out vengeance. It's a whole other thing to love the person who's causing you harm. I love the way uh, Augustine put it. Augustine's an early church father. He said it this way. He said, many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. I think that's what Jesus is going to try to show us a little bit here today. How do we love people who are uh, purposely... Uh, against us or are opposed to us? How do we actually move on to loving them? So in light of this, what I want to do with the rest of our time is I actually want to think through three questions, three questions about loving our enemy that I think Jesus is going to address right in this passage. And so here's the three questions that we're going to go through. This is kind of a roadmap of our talk today. So first off, I think we need to ask the question, who is my enemy? Okay, so Jesus says that we should love our enemy. I think it might be helpful for us to define what exactly does he mean by that? So who exactly is our enemy? What category of person am I talking about? So I think it's important that we start there. Number two, I want to think about this. What does it look like to love them? So Jesus is going to say we should love our enemies. So practically speaking, right, let's put some skin on that. What does that actually mean to love them? So we're going to talk about that. And then number three, uh, the the last question is this. Um, So how is this even possible? Right? So how how do we do this? How do we take Jesus seriously? Should we take Jesus serious 
when he says this idea of loving our enemies? And if so, how do we do that? How do we even find the power and the strength? And how do we find the possibility to actually pull this off? So that's what we're going to think about, those three questions. So the first one uh, is this. It's who is, who is my enemy? Who exactly is my enemy? So I want you to notice, if you look at verse 43, where Jesus starts his teaching on enemies, he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, um, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he says, but I tell you, I tell you, you should love your enemies and you should pray for those who persecute you. Now, man, there is a lot to say about these two verses, and there's a lot that has been said about these two verses. But I want to make just one very basic observation as we start that I think is actually really crucial. And it's this. I want you to notice that in this teaching, Jesus assumes that we are going to have enemies. So I just want you to notice that. I think this is very important. Jesus doesn't say, if you're my follower, the point is that you have no enemies. You will never have an enemy. That's not what he says. He says, I tell you, you should love your enemies. That's what he says, which basically is an implication that Jesus is saying it's inevitable that every single one of us is going to experience enemies. It's something that's going to happen. And I think that that gets helpful for us to know that. Jesus doesn't say, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, have no enemies. That's not what he says. He says, no, love, love your enemies. And so this is very relevant to all of us because what, what, what Jesus is going to say is that all of us at one point in our life and probably at most points in our life are going to have people and relationships in our life that are categorized as enemies. Now, even for some of you, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I don't think I have any enemies. Like, I, I, as I'm thinking about it, I don't really have it. Some of you are like, oh, no, I definitely have enemies. Some of you are like, well, I don't really think I have enemies. But I think, I think if we look at Jesus's definition of enemy, you might actually change your mind. You might actually change your mind. So that is the question then. Uh, who is my enemy exactly? Like, can we, can we define that a little bit? And I actually think we can. I think we can. In fact, I think Jesus in this very passage gives us great indication of who exactly he's talking about when he's talking about our enemy. So to understand what Jesus means when he says, love your enemy, I think that part of that comes in first understanding what it would have meant to his original audience. So you need to remember when Jesus gave this sermon, he was teaching to an original audience in the first century. And when he would have spoken these words and he would have said, love your enemy, that word enemy would have meant something to them. It would have meant something. So what did it mean to them? Well, like I said, I think there's indication here. So look, look at four, verse 43 with me. Jesus starts off by saying to this audience that he's teaching to, you have heard that it was said. So Jesus says to this group of people, you guys know what, you guys know what they say. You have heard that it was said. And what was said? That you should love your neighbor and you should hate your enemy. Okay, so here's the question. Where did they hear that? So they have heard that it was said, who told them that? And here's the answer. Now, some of you might think, well, the Bible, right? That's what the Bible says. But you actually would be kind of right, but not entirely. And here's why. Because the first part, when it says, love your neighbor, that is in the Bible. That's very much in the Bible. It comes right out of Leviticus chapter 19. In the Old Testament, it says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. It's right there. But the second part, the second part, hate your enemy, is nowhere in the Bible. You're not going to find that in the Bible. It's just not there. So the question is, then, where where would they have heard that? Well, this is referring to the interpretation of the Bible 
that would have been propagated and would have been accepted by the religious leaders and the religious teachers back in this time. So the religious teachers would have taught the people in Jesus' audience that the Bible tells you you should love your neighbor and you should hate your enemy. In fact, there actually was this big debate that was going on in Jesus' time. There's this big, big debate. And the whole debate was about this one question. It was, who is my neighbor? So Jesus, the Bible says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. So there's this big debate. Who exactly does that include? Who does that entail? Who is my neighbor? And um, the whole source of this debate was actually based off of the original passage where you see the command. And I actually just want to show it to you. See, I want you to stick with me here just for, for just a minute, but this is so important. So uh, in Leviticus chapter 19, this is the passage that tells us we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And I want you to notice it. Okay, so look, look at how it's worded. It says, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this is the passage, which was all about loving your neighbor. So the big debate was, well, who exactly is my neighbor? Well, do you notice, I don't know if you notice this, do you notice the language this passage uses to describe who your neighbor is? Do you notice it? It says stuff like this, your people. It says things like a fellow Israelite. It says things like your people. And so here's what the religious leaders taught. The person you're supposed to love is your people. The person that you're, you're commanded to love are your fellow you know, people who are like you. If I could define it very easily, for them, your neighbor, your neighbor was defined simply as those who were nearest to you. And I don't just mean in proximity. I mean in a lot of different ways. The people who are nearest to you religiously. The people who are nearest to you politically. The people who are nearest to you racially, ideologically, socially, on and on. For, for, for the first century Jewish audience that Jesus was teaching to, when they, when they heard love your neighbor, this is who they thought of. So who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is the person who's closest to you. The neighbor is the person who's most like you. The neighbor is the person who is one of your own people. That's kind of the idea of your neighbor. And the religious leaders actually taught that we were supposed to love our neighbors, but you don't have to love your enemies. In fact, you can even hate your enemies, and that's totally okay by God. Now, of course, you guys probably know this. Jesus totally disagrees with that, right? In fact, in Luke chapter 10, uh, if you want to do a little additional reading on your own, Luke chapter 10, Jesus is actually asked that question. Someone says, who's your neighbor? And Jesus goes on to give the most scandalous parable called the parable of the Good Samaritan to basically just utterly destroy their concept of, of their limitations of who they would have thought of when they would have thought of a neighbor. But if this is how Jesus' audience understood neighbor, if this is how they define neighbor, here's the question. How would they have understood the word enemy? If your neighbor is the person who's nearest to you, who would be in the category of enemy then? I think it's pretty easy to figure it out. Your enemy would be the person who is the furthest from you, those who are far from you, those who are far from you religiously, furthest from you politically, on the other side of the aisle people who are far from you racially or ideologically or socially. And so I think you can see this covered a very broad spectrum of people. Uh, in fact, I think it's kind of interesting. The word enemy that's used in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is actually based off of a, a very generic term. And the term ju just simply means this. It means someone who opposes you or someone who hates you. 
the one who opposes you or the one who hates you. It's the person who's the furthest from you. It's the person who is the, the furthest from you in so many different ways. And so with that in mind, understanding a little bit about that now, let me ask you this question. So here's the question I want you to think about. Based on some of those things, who's your enemy? Who would be today, who would be your enemies? What kind of people, let me ask you this question. Who in your life opposes you? Who do you sense has hatred towards you, can't stand you? Who is someone who wishes or speaks or enacts harm against you? Who is that? Or maybe we can flip the question around. Maybe we could ask it this way. Who can't you stand? Who is the person that you oppose, that you struggle to hate? Who, who is the person in your life who you struggle to not to speak in a way that you speak harm against them or that you uh, have a hard time not uh, wishing harm for them? Who might that be? I think you get it. That's the idea of who your enemy is. That's, and it could be a lot of different people. I think we get it. It could, be, it could be a coworker who's just like dedicated to making your life just absolutely terrible. It could be an ex-spouse, you know, ex-boyfriend or girlfriend. It could be uh, a, someone at your school, uh, maybe a fellow student, someone who's belligerent or who's just you know, against you. It could be a family member, a broken relationship. It could be, a lot. It could be the person sitting next to you, for all I know, which don't, don't nudge anybody or anything like that. But it could be. It could be. It could be a lot of different people. And Jesus is going to say this. Jesus is going to say that we should love them. We should love them, not just tolerate them, not just like not seek retaliation against them, but we should love them. We should actually love those people. My guess is that even right now, there might be names that are coming to your mind of people who might fit into that very broad category of enemy, might fit in that category. And so Jesus is going to say we should love them. So that, that leads to the second question then. Okay, well, what does that look like exactly? So what does it look like to love them? Jesus says, I should. So what are we talking about here exactly? Jesus is going to tell us just straight up to love our enemies. So can you give me some practicality of what that might look like? Because I think there's a lot of questions. This is where it gets confusing. Because some of us might be thinking, okay, so to love them, does that mean that I'm supposed to like, have warm feelings about them? Is that what that means? Is it, by loving them, does that mean that I'm supposed to like them? Does that mean that I'm supposed to like hang out with them, like be friends with them? Does that mean that I'm supposed to like accept them and ex- like and, and completely agree with the decisions they're making and endorse the choices and the lifestyle that they're embracing? Is that what it means to love somebody? And I think I honestly think that the reason that this can be such a confusing a confusing thing for us is because in our language, in the English language, I think a lot of us know this, the word love has such a broad semantic range. And so it means a lot of different things. Like when I say I love something or when you say you love something, we can mean a whole bunch of different things because the word love means so many things to us. So for example, I could look at you guys and I could tell you that I love Chipotle. I could tell you that. And that is accurate. I do love Chipotle. I could also tell you, you could tell me that there's certain movies that you love. Like I could tell you, I love the Harry Potter series. And that's true. I do really, I really enjoy that quite a bit. That's what I mean by that. But I could also say, I love my wife. And I could also say, I love my kids. And I think all of us know, when I say I love Chipotle and I love my wife, I mean two very different things. Very different things. <laughs> And so you can see the word love is one that's kind of confusing to us. So when Jesus says love, when he says that we're to love our enemies, the question is, what exactly does he mean by that? What exactly does he mean? See, in our, in our culture, the, probably most often when we think of love, 
we tend to equate it with a feeling. We tend to equate it with a warm, fuzzy feeling that we have towards someone or towards something. Or, here's a real popular one, in our culture today, we tend to equate love with agreement. And so if you disagree with me, that means that you hate me. And so the way that you love me is that you agree and accept every decision that I make and all the choices that I make and those kind of things. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? Well, I want you to understand that the word that he uses here for love is actually a really important word uh, in the Greek language. This is where Greek is actually really helpful because in the Greek language, they actually had a lot of different words for love. They had four different words for love. And the word that was used here for love is, some of you guys know this, it's the word agape. It's probably the most famous Greek word in the Greek language. It is the word agape love. And agape love is a categorically different kind of love than all others. This is the love that's most equated to the way that God loves us, that God loves us. And what's interesting is when you look, Jesus is actually going to give us some examples. He's going to give us some examples of what it looks like to show agape love. And what you're going to see is in the examples that Jesus gives, he says nothing about feelings. He says nothing about the way you feel. And he says nothing about agreeing with another person. He says nothing about those things. What is agape love? Let me give you a definition Agape love is this. Agape love is a commitment. It is a choice. It is a decision to love. I am going to love. It's not a feeling. It's not I'm, go- it's not, I'm agreeing with you. It's, no, it's a commitment. I am deciding to love you. And it's expressed, noticed, in humble, tangible, practical, sacrificial acts of service. That's what agape love is. So I think, I think what Jesus is telling us is that it is possible, it is entirely possible to disagree with a person strongly and yet still love them from the heart with agape love. It's totally possible. It is completely possible to not feel warm feelings towards another person and yet to still show agape love to them because agape love is a choice. It's not based on a feeling and it's expressed in humble, tangible, practical, sacrificial acts of service. So what does it mean to love your enemy? It means this, it means agape. It means a commitment and it means that I'm going to show humble, tangible, practical, sacrificial actions towards you. Some of you might be thinking, okay, well, can you maybe give me some examples of what that might look like? Can you give me some examples of what agape love actions could look like? And uh, yeah, I actually can. I could give you a lot of examples, but let me just give you three because Jesus is about to give us three. Jesus is gonna tell us, he's gonna say, you want, you want a few tangible ways? He's gonna, here's what he's gonna say. He's gonna say, um, pray for them, pray. He's gonna say, give to them, which I'll explain here in a second. And then he's gonna say, greet them. Greet them, super practical. So, so look, what, look what Jesus says. He says, agape, love your enemies. How do you do that? He says, here you go, pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. One of the ways that we can show agape love to our enemies is that we can pray for them. We can pray for them. That's what Jesus says. And by the way, the word prayer here, I think is an important word. It literally is the word that means petition to petition. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that word, but petitionary prayer or intercessory prayer is what it's sometimes called, is the idea of that I am, I am going to God on your behalf for your benefit. That's the idea. I am, I am going to God and I'm, I'm, I'm going to God on your behalf I'm bringing you to him, and I'm going for your benefit. That's the idea. So this is not, when it says pray for your enemy, this isn't like pray like, God, kill him. It's not that. This isn't like praying like, God, I 
ask that you give them a really itchy rash in a really embarrassing location. That's not it. That's not it. This is praying for their good. This is praying for their benefit. This is praying on their behalf for their benefit to God. That's what he's talking about here. And so Jesus says, you want a practical way? You want a very practical way to love your enemy? Here you go. Pray for them. Pray for them. Petition. Go, go to God on behalf of them. That's a very practical way that you can do this. Now, I think there's probably a lot of different reasons why Jesus tells us to do this. And we could probably think about that and talk about that for a very long time. But can I tell you one reason that I think Jesus tells us to do this? I think the reason Jesus tells us to do this is because he knows that praying for someone doesn't just impact them, but it also very much impacts the person who's praying. Uh, I love the way John Stott put it. John Stott wrote an excellent commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, he said, intercessory prayer or or petitionary prayer is a means to increase our love. It's impossible to pray for people without loving them. And it's impossible to go on praying for them without discovering that our love for them grows and matures. We must not, therefore, wait before praying for our enemies until we feel some love for them in our heart. We must begin to pray for them before we're conscious of loving them. And we shall find that our love break first into bud and then into blossom. I think he's got the right idea here. Part of what happens when we pray for our enemy is it begins to, to change our heart. And it begins to change our perspective. So Jesus says, do you want to love your enemy? He says, here's a very practical way to do it. You can pray for them. You know, I can't, I can't help but wonder, you know, what if we, for those of us who follow Jesus, and I know that's not everybody here today. Some of you are still investigating Christianity and Jesus and that whole thing. And we're so glad that you're able to be with us. But for those of us who follow Christ, what would it look like if we actually took what Jesus said here literally? Like, what if we actually took this, took this seriously? Like for those of us who follow Christ, what if this? Here, here I, I'm just gonna go ahead. And, I'm gonna dare you. What if I did this? What if I triple dog dared you? Triple, that's three dogs. What if I triple dog dared you this week in light of this teaching for the next 10 days? What if you literally prayed for your enemy? 10 days, it's my challenge to you. 10 minutes for the next 10 days every day prayed for your enemy. What if you took it serious? Like, not just hypothetically, I should pray for my enemies, not just if I happen to think about it, but like prioritized it, if you did that. What if you even put it in your calendar or you set an alarm on your phone and when it went off, you said, I'm gonna spend the next 10 minutes, I'm gonna pray for my enemy because I'm gonna take Jesus's words seriously. Here's what I think. I think if you did that, you probably would be surprised at the change that might happen in your heart as a result of it. Jesus says, pray for your enemy. Here's another thing he's gonna say. He's gonna say one of the ways that we show agape love is that we give, we give to our enemy. Let, let me show you what Jesus says next. I love this next part so much. So Jesus says this, pray for those who persecute you. And then he says that you might be children of your father in heaven. He, that is your father in heaven, God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, I think, I think this is so cool what Jesus says here. Jesus says, do you want to know how to love your enemies? Do you want an example of how to show agape love? He says, here's a great example. Just look at how your heavenly father treats his enemies. And that's going to really help you know how to treat your enemies. And how does our heavenly father treat his enemies? Well, look what the Bible says. The Bible says that he causes some stuff to happen and he sends some stuff. 
He causes and he sends. Specifically, he causes his son to rise and he sends his reign, both on the righteous and the unrighteous, both on the godly and the ungodly, both on those who love him and those who hate him. God does this. This is actually something that theologians sometimes call common grace. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. If you never have, common grace is basically this. Common grace is referring to the grace that God bestows onto every human being without favoritism, whether you love him or you don't love him, whether you worship him or you deny him, whether you thank him or you don't thank him. God is just going to cause the son and he's going to send his reign. He's not going to withhold those blessings from even his enemies. This is how God loves his enemies. I think it's actually kind of interesting if you think about it. The sun and the rain, those two things, are kind of like the two key ingredients in the water cycle. You guys know the water cycle, like the thing that keeps us all alive? Uh, You know, uh, evaporation, precipitation, condensation, that whole thing. Without the water cycle, we'd all be dead. There'd be no way that we could have life on this earth without that. We wouldn't have clean water. It's just the natural cycle that happens. And here's what the Bible says. God causes that, and he makes that happen even for those who hate him, even for those who deny him. He causes if it's common grace to everyone. That was kind of interesting. As I was reading this this past week, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to put Jesus's teaching to the test. I'm going to see if it still stands up. And so I started to think about it. I thought, you know, what cities in the world are, do you think that there are people who maybe in in the most consolidated way are seeking and worshiping God? Like, I thought, what are the godliest cities on earth? What could they be? And I don't know what would come to your mind if I asked that question, but I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, what would be like the place where people are probably seeking God, the most religious place, the place where God is kind of a big deal? And I, the first thing that came to my mind, I don't know about you, but was Rome. I thought, well, maybe Rome, you know, because that's where like the Vatican is and there's people that like, so I thought, what's the weather like in Rome this week? So I went on my weather app, I checked it out, and here's the forecast, all right? So notice in Rome, specifically over the weekend, What's happening over here? You see this? Here's what's happening. It looks like God is causing his sun to shine. It looks like he's sending some rain to the people who are in Rome, the people who maybe there are seeking after him. Then I thought about it. I thought, well, what's another godly place? Like, what's another godly city? You know what came to my mind? I don't know what came to your mind. What came to my mind is Atlanta, Georgia. That came to my mind. You know why? Because that's where Chick-fil-A started. <laughs> so I'm like, that's got to be like, that's got to be like the Holy Land, you know? And so I'm like, what is, what's God doing to the holy people in Atlanta? And I'm like, oh, well, here we go. It looks, like, it looks like God is causing his sun to shine. He's sending some rain. And I thought, okay, well, those are like the godly places, right? What about the ungodly places? So what came to my mind first and foremost, I actually thought of Las Vegas because I thought that's like Sin City. So I checked out Vegas. Here's what's going on there. Do you notice? Looks like God's causing his sun to shine there. There's a small chance of rain going on over here, but it looks like that's what's going on. And then I thought, what's the most godless place that we know of? And you guys probably know what I'm going to say. You guys know me, right? You know me too well. Ann Arbor, Michigan, that place up north. I thought that's it. I know you guys, some of you guys thought I was going to say something different, didn't you? I, was, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that to you guys at all. I wouldn't talk about Pittsburgh. But here's, here's my point. None of these places, none of them have a 100% chance of sulfuric burning rain. That's just not on the forecast for any of them. In every single place, God is generous. 
whether people love him or they hate him or they worship him or they don't, he, he will cause, he will send his son and his rays. And I love, I love these words. The Bible says he's going to cause and he's going to send. Yes, those are, those are deliberate words that communicate the idea that God is not withholding his resources for the benefit of even those who hate him. He's not withholding those things, but he's graciously giving them. And I'll tell you what else I think is really cool. I think this is awesome. Notice what Jesus says. He says, God causes not the son, he causes his son, his son. I think that's pretty cool. It actually reminds me of my kids. Sometimes my kids will come to me and they'll say, Dad, I don't, I don't want to clean my room. And I always correct them. I say, it's not your room. It's my room because it's my, what, house, right? And then in those moments, the Holy Spirit usually reminds me, uh, son, it's not your house. <laughs> it's my house because it's my world, right? And here, here's, here's the point. God gives graciously to all. And I think, how does this instruct us? Here, here's how I think this instructs us. I think it causes us to ask the question, how can I, like my heavenly father, how can I use my resources, my time, my possessions, my skills, my abilities, how can I use those things to, to purposefully bless my enemies? Tangibly, physically bless them. How could I do that? How could I use those things not to withhold them from my enemy, but to actually leverage them as a way in which I could love them, I could show them love, agape love. That's the question it causes us to ask. I think what Jesus is saying is one of the ways that we show agape love is through generous, undeserved acts of kindness. It's an amazing way that we can do that. I think Jesus is saying, if you have a bad relationship, seize the initiative by agape love and make it better. And I believe that when we do that, like our heavenly father, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes by doing that, we can destroy our enemies. And I don't mean destroying, destroying them by harming them. I mean destroying them by making them our friends. You know, I remember uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who was a man who knew a thing or two about loving his enemies and was a man who was greatly transformed by the agape love of Jesus Christ and by the Sermon on the Mount. I remember uh, I was reading something about him, and this picture came to mind. This is actually a very moving picture. It's a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. taking a uh, burnt cross that the KKK had burnt in his front yard. It's removing it. And later, he gave a talk. And as he gave that talk, he was talking about repaying evil for evil. And here's what he said. <clears throat> the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing that it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you can't murder the lie nor establish the truth. Through violence, you murder the hater, but you don't murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night that's already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love, only agape love can do something like that. I think his words here are penetrating, and I think that they're accurate to what Jesus is talking about. Those of us who follow him, the Bible says that we're called, even in the midst of facing our enemies, not to respond in kind with evil and with hatred, but instead to do so with agape love, to be lights in the world. So Jesus says, how do we do this? He says, well, part, part of how we do it is we pray. Another way that we do this, he's gonna say, is that we give. We, we think of how can we utilize our resources, just like our father has, to love and bless 
And then this last one, I think this is so practical. Jesus is going to say one of the ways that we should do it is by greeting, is by greeting them. I mean, how practical is this? Look what Jesus says. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you, look at this, if you greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that. So you see what Jesus' point is? He says, if, if all you do is love people who are like you, and all you do is greet people, welcome people who are like you, he says, you're not doing anything different than everyone else does. Everyone does that. We all have a proclivity, a tendency within us that we gravitate towards the people who are the most like us. And Jesus says, but my children are to look different. And part of how we love our enemy, according to Jesus, is we greet them. We greet them. I mean, come on, how practical, how practical is this? You say hi to them. You smile. You welcome them when you see them. I think, I think this is just so good. This is such practical te- teaching from Jesus. Just think about this with me for a minute. When you leave here today, you're going to greet some people, right? There's going to be some people you probably are going to go out of your way to greet. And maybe there's going to be some people that you go out of your way to not greet. When you go into your neighborhood, when you go into the workplace, when you go back to school, there's going to be people that you go out of your way to say hi to, to greet, to welcome. And there might be some people that you go out of your way to avoid. I think Jesus is actually getting in on that. I think Jesus is actually pointing at that and he's saying, listen, you want to know how you love your enemies? One of the ways is this, is you go and you say hi, you greet them. Now, I want you to hear me. I'm not saying that there aren't times because there are. I'm not saying that there's not times where there's good reason for you to break relationship and for you to avoid another person. I think there's actually sometimes that there's wisdom in that. But I do want to tell you that by, by and large, most of the time in most enemy relationships, one of the ways that we love them is by our disposition towards them. I think I probably told you this before. I actually think that there's a theological reason why we should smile and say hi to people. I think there is. And it's because of God's grace. The Bible, uh, uh, one of the ways that, the, that is, uh, the biblical word for grace is defined, it's this. It's, it's the friendly disposition from which kindly acts proceed. And I love that. Because that means that God has a friendly disposition towards us, and that that instructs us in the way that we can love other people. So love, how do we love? He's going to say we do that with agape, which that leads to the third question then. So who is my enemy? I think Jesus helps us understand it's a whole broad spectrum. What does it look like to love them? Jesus helps us understand that it's agape. It's more than a feeling. It's more than just simply agreeing with that person. It goes beyond that. It's a sacrificial kind of action-based love so here's the last question. All right, so I get it. How is this possible? How is it even possible for us to do this? So at this point, some of you might be even thinking this. You might be thinking, okay, I hear what Jesus is saying. And you might even be saying this. I agree with Jesus is saying. I think all of us in this room would probably agree that the world would be a much better place. It just would be if we all took this seriously and lived this way. But here's the truth. The truth is, I think for a lot of us, we're like, okay, if I try to do this, maybe, maybe I would make it till tomorrow afternoon. Maybe, maybe this afternoon, right? That's as far as I, and a lot of us might look at this and say, this sounds good, but this sounds unrealistic. And this sounds like a completely unsustainable way of life. How in the world are we ever gonna find the power to do something like this? Well, let me just say that if that's you, and if you are challenged by Jesus' teaching, like I am, let me just tell you that what Jesus goes on to say next I think is maybe the most troubling of them all. So Jesus says, you have heard that it said, love your neighbor 
hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemy, to which a lot of us go, oh, that's hard. And then Jesus says, oh, you think that's hard? He says, how about this? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me ask you, how you doing on that one this week? You guys nailing it? Okay, I saw one thumbs up over here. It's good. How you doing on the lying thing? Is that working out? Good. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Be perfect. Man, I think for a lot of us, we're like, what in the world does he mean by that? And so let me see if I can help you out. I've been studying this quite a bit. I've been thinking about this quite a bit. And I want to show you something I think is interesting. So the word perfect that Jesus uses is a very important word, very important. In the Greek language, it's actually the word teleos. It's the word teleos. And the word teleos is very fascinating because sometimes it's translated perfect. But many times, in fact, most times, the way the word is translated is actually mature, complete, or finished. It's the idea of attaining an end or attaining a purpose. And so when it says be perfect, in some ways what he's saying is be mature. Or he's saying finish it, complete, be complete as your heavenly father is complete. Now what does that mean? All right, well, let me, let me show you something I think is really interesting. Some of you guys might remember when we first started this series, Pastor Seth was teaching and he did, uh, was looking at verse 17. And some of you might remember how Jesus started this whole section off. He started off by saying this. Jesus said, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament. He says, I haven't come to abolish them, but I have come to, say it with me, fulfill. So Jesus says, I haven't come to do away with the law. He says, I've actually come to fulfill it. I've come to complete it. I've come to finish it. And then Jesus goes on and he says a bunch of things. He go, over and over again, he says, you have heard that it was said. And he quotes from usually the law. You have heard that it was said, you shouldn't murder. You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. You have heard that it is said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And then Jesus says this, but I tell you, but I tell you, and Jesus takes the teaching a whole other step further. He takes it even further than that. And then at the end, what does he say? Be perfect be teleos, be complete, like your heavenly father is complete. And what's he getting at here? All right, well, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. So I found this very, very helpful, and my hope is that you find this, this is helpful to you too. But I actually brought a couple of things with me to help illustrate what I think Jesus is talking about here. So I have uh, two containers with me, all right? So one is full of liquid. This is another, just a regular glass jar. And for illustration's sake, I want you just to, um, I want you to think about it this way. This is uh, this represents love. Okay, so this is love juice. That's what that is. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and say love juice. Go ahead and do it. That's uh, real awkward. All right, there you go. I can't believe you actually did that. All right, so now apologize. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so this is love juice. And let's just say this represents people. This represents people. Now, even if you're not a church person, my guess is that you probably have heard this. According to Jesus, the greatest commandment, if you could summarize them all, is this. The greatest thing God wants us to do is he wants us to love. Above all else, this is what God desires. This is what God wants, is love. To love him, love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor, to love other people as ourselves. That is the greatest command. That's it. Now, here's the big question. Well, what does that mean, though? What does love require? And specifically, when you're talking about my enemy, what does it mean? 
Here's what Jesus does. I think this is so brilliant. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said that what love looks like is that you shouldn't kill people. So how do you love people? Don't kill them. And here's what I think Jesus says. I agree. I have not come to abolish that. I have not come to disagree with that. That's true. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, you have heard that it is said, one of the ways that you can love people is don't commit adultery. You want to know a great way to love your spouse? And this, this, the, other, the other people's don't commit adultery. And Jesus would say, agreed. I'm not abolishing that. The, the religious leader said this, you should love, love your neighbor. Love the people who are like you. You should love them. And Jesus says, agree. Haven't come to abolish that. But here's what Jesus says. He says, but I tell you. You've heard that it said, don't murder. He says, now have you gone far enough in your love if you don't kill someone? He says, I tell you that if you're even angry with a person and you devalue them and you call them an idiot, he says, you haven't gone far enough. So I say, finish it, complete it, teleos, fill it up. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shouldn't commit adultery. That's how you love people. And he said, I agree. He said, but is that as far as you should go in your love? Is that it? He says, no, 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 that's not what God requires. He says, you should finish it. If you even look lustfully at another person, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And so Jesus says, you need to take what the law started and you need to finish it. Love requires more than that. So here's what the Pharisees said. They said, you need to love your neighbor. You need to love your neighbor. And Jesus said, I agree with that. I haven't come to abolish that. He says, but I tell you, don't just love your neighbor. What does love require? He says, you need to love your enemy. Go all the way in agape love. And then he ends by saying, therefore, be perfect, be mature, be complete, be filled as your heavenly father is perfect, how your heavenly father is filled. Now, at this point, my guess is that everyone in the audience was, knew what he was talking about, but probably like our audience, they probably were thinking the same thing, and that's this. Okay, I get it, but I can't do that. Like, okay, if, if God's standard, if God's standard is don't murder, I think I can do that, I think. Some days, it's challenging, right? I have four kids. Uh, you know, it's like... <laughs> If God's standard is don't commit adultery, I think I can do that, I think. But if, God, if God's standard is if I'm angry with a brother or sister, I've already broken his law. If, if God's standard is if I lust after a woman, I've broken his law, I can't do that. If God's standard is not just love people who are like me, but love people who hate me, I can't, I don't have the resources to pull that off. And no one is perfect. And at that point, I think Jesus would probably smirk. And he probably would say, and that's my point exactly. That's my point exactly. You see, we've talked about this the whole way through. The Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is trying to do is Jesus is trying to help us understand. He wants to ruin, he wants to ruin this, this confidence that we have in our own good works. And he wants us to see that every single one of us has fallen short of his love. We've fallen short of his standard. You want to know how you love your enemies. Do you want to know where you find the power to do it? 
Here's where you find the power to do it. It's only when you realize that you and me, that all of us, that we are far from God, that we are opposite of the love that God has for us. It's only when we realize that we ourselves, the Bible's gonna say it this way, are enemies of God. Because of our sin, because we have not lived up to his standard, the Bible is gonna say we have all opposed God and we are enemies of God. And how has God treated us as his enemies? The Bible says that he's prayed for us, that he's given his son for us, that he greets us in his grace. Here's what I've come to find is true. Loved enemies love enemies. The only way you're ever gonna find the power to love your enemy is when you realize that you are a loved enemy. That while you and I were distant from God, while when you and I were sinning and were far from him, that he chose to love those who were furthest from him, that he chose to give of himself for us. And it's only when we let that love fill our hearts and fill our lives and overflow outside of us and pour onto the lives of others that we can ever sustain the kind of love that he calls us into. And so let me just say that if you're a person who's investigating Jesus and you've never embraced him, I want you to know this. He loves all of us. He loves you very much. And he's died for you. Even if you hate him, he loves you. And when you embrace him and you embrace the love that he has for you, he wants to transform your heart and he wants to give you his Holy Spirit that's gonna help give you the resources, not perfectly, but increasingly, to love like he is loved. I'm asking the band to come up, and, and as they do, um, I wanna end this series and I wanna end today's talk by doing something a little different than we typically do. So usually I pray and then, and then we worship and sing together and then uh, we close out the service. But I actually wanna just give you a little bit of space today. I wanna give you space to just talk to God, just talk to him. And so if I could ask you to do this, if you would just, if I could have everyone in the room, just bow your heads and close your eyes. If you could just do that. And here, here's what I want you to do. Maybe for some of you, you're, you know, you don't, you'd never pray. You've just never prayed before. And I just wanna encourage you, maybe even in these next moments, just to open your heart and open your thoughts to him. And if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what I wanna instruct us to do. I want you to think about your enemies, the names that have been coming to your mind, the people who you struggle to love or the people who you know struggle to love you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what I wanna ask you to do. In light of what Jesus has said, pray for them. Pray for them. Would you release hatred? Would you release anger? Confess it to God. And then would you ask God, would you be courageous enough to ask him to show you what agape love would look like as you love them? Take this time and you talk to God.